Welcome, everyone. Thank you to everyone joining us online and here at the ASU California Center at the historic Herald Examiner Building. With great respect, Zocalo Public Square acknowledges the Yuhaviatam, the first people of the ancestral and unceded territory of Yangna that we now know as downtown Los Angeles. We honor their elders, past and present, and the Yuhaviatam descendants who are part of the Gabriela Tongva and the Fernandeño Tataviam nations. We recognize that the Tongva are still here and we are committed to lifting up their stories, culture, and community. As Kuyam, we recognize our responsibility and obligation to care for their land. I'm Talib Jabbar. I'm an associate editor at Zocalo Public Square, which is an Arizona State University media enterprise. At Zocalo, our mission is to connect people to ideas and to each other. Everything we do is free and everyone is welcome. We publish original writing and present conversations like this one. You can find us at zocalopublicsquare.org, on all podcast platforms, and YouTube. So please subscribe. Our upcoming program will be held this coming Wednesday, June 1st, where we'll be presenting our annual book prize to Heather McGee for her book, The Sum of Us. Please join us. It will surely be a celebration of her very important work. Heather will be interviewed by Renata Simmerill of the LA84 Foundation. But tonight, we are honored to partner with Creating Our Next LA to ask, what do we want from the next LA mayor? I'm pleased to introduce Karen Mack, Executive Director of LA Commons. Over to you. Thank you. Hi, uh, so great to see everybody here tonight. Um, and uh, we are so honored to be co-presenting this program with uh, Zocalo Public Square. Um, our program, uh, Creating Our Next LA, is really dedicated to advancing equity and transformation in our city, using art and cultural programs to lift up community voices. If you wanna find out more about our program and uh, when you can participate in our events, uh, check us out on social media. Um, what I'm even almost more excited about is introducing our moderator, Janiah Williams, who uh, just told me she's actually from LA, although she's been all over the country, um, and she's host <laughs> of All Things Considered, uh, yay, right, on KCRW, and she has worked as a reporter for WNYC and WWNO and as a producer on NPR, um, and she's so good. She's won lots of National Journalism Awards, so with her at the helm, I know we're going to have a great discussion, and I'm going to turn it over to you, Janaya. Thank you so much. Hi, I'm Janaya Williams. I'm the host of All Things Considered on KCRW. I'd like to welcome everyone. Uh, I'd like to welcome our online guests, people who are watching on YouTube. Um, and here tonight, we're gonna talk about what we want from the next LA mayor. And so I'm so happy to introduce our conversationalists. Uh, Dr. Anjmarie Hancock Alfaro is a political scientist who studies issues of inequality. And she's also a leading scholar in intersectionality theory. She's the director of the USC Dornsife Center for Leadership by Women of Color, and she's the chair of the political science department. The many books she's written include Solidarity, Solidarity Politics for Millennials, A Guide to Ending the Oppression Olympics, and Intersectionality, A History. And she also designed the business model for the Women's National Basketball Association. <laughs> Dr. Anjali Hancock Alfaro, welcome. Give her a round of applause. 
I'm also joined by Rafael De La Rosa. Uh, he is the Assistant Vice President for Government and Community Relations at California State University, Northridge. He also serves as CSUN's lead ambassador to local community groups, as well as regional, state, and national agencies and elected officials. He was previously the Director of Government Relations for the Silicon Valley Leadership Group. Rafael De La Rosa, round of applause. And last but not least, Taylor Baisley. Uh, Taylor Baisley is the co-founder and CEO of Green Queen. That's a cannabis retail and social enterprise, and it's focused on community reinvestment into the LGBTQIA community. Taylor is a passionate advocate for LGBTQIA causes, and he has a background in public affairs. He recently worked with LA Council Member Mike Bonin on major projects related to Venice, as well as managing district-wide homelessness policy, artistic funding, and cannabis regulation. Taylor Baisley, thank you so much. So thank you, everybody. We'll be taking questions from the audience later in the program. Also, if you're watching on YouTube, you can just drop your questions right into the chat, and we'll get to those later. So with that, we are going to jump right in. Tonight, we are asking, what do we want from the next LA mayor? And uh, we are asking that because in the past, City Hall and leaders have taken their cues from the people, from the people who are on the street, who are doing the work, who are talking to communities. And so, uh, and they take cues from how we interact with each other, how we solve our problems, how we respond to natural disasters, how we respond to uh, racial inequality, economic inequality. So uh, we're here to talk about what we want to see happen with the next leadership of this city. So we can jump right in. <laughs> um, I want to ask each of you to kind of talk about what your relationship is to LA. Um, and uh, I'll start. Uh, my family moved to um, the Santa Clarita Valley in the 90s, so LA adjacent. And um, when there was nothing really there, but like a Mervyn's and a supermarket, <laughs> shout out to Mervyn's and those who remember. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, it's, it's much different now. Um, a few years later, we moved down to Santa Monica. I graduated from Santa Monica High School, go Vikings. And uh, I was a sophomore in high school when the uh, LA unrest happened, when the LA uprising happened, to give you a sense of the timeline. Um, I went to Cal Berkeley, and then I went to the, the East Coast, and I stayed there for, the, I've been there for the last 20-some years, and I just moved back to L.A. a few months ago. I live in South L.A., outside of Leimert Park. And so I say all this to say that those things really inform what I want from the next L.A. mayor. Um, those identities, I'm a renter, I'm African-American, I'm, I'm a woman. So those things really inform what I want from the next LA mayor. So I just wanna, I, I just wanna get from you guys um, just your story and what your relationship is to LA and how that informs what you're looking for in the next mayor. Um, Ange Marie, do you wanna start? Sure, I'm happy to start. Um, and thank you for being an excellent moderator already. Oh, thank um, And you. thank you for the invitation. <laughs> <laughs> to be here, I'm really excited uh, to be here with my fellow panelists. Um, so I've been in the LA for 14 years, um, and we are actually part of a more recent migration. I won't call it a great migration necessarily, but my sister moved here in 1999, uh, my middle sister. 
Then I came in 2008. Then my youngest sister came in 2012. And my mother um, uh, came in 2013. So we are now fully Angelinos in some way, shape, or form. Um, but over the course of the past 14 years, I have been working at USC um, as a professor. Uh, but I've lived in a whole bunch of different parts of Los Angeles. Um, so when I first came, I lived in Koreatown, right in 4th and Normandy. Um, then uh, moved out to not, uh, not uh, LA adjacent Palmdale for a couple of years. Um, came back to campus, uh, lived on campus, and then in South LA, and then spent uh, two years in Playa Vista most recently. Um, so have lived, you know, kind of in a variety of different places. Oh, I've also forgot I lived not too far from the Grove um, for one year. And so again, you know, really just the sense of Los Angeles um, that I've had is that uh, it's a town of neighborhoods, absolutely. Um, and a place where I think there are a lot of people who are committed to Los Angeles, but committed to many other things. And so one of the things I think about a lot when I think about what LA needs um, and how I approach it is really, what does LA as a whole city need um, while we are busy also trying to save the rest of the world, right? So whether it's philanthropically or voting wise, like we donate and we give a lot of money to causes that are national or international. Um, and so it's helpful to really, for me, to think about what does LA need specifically as an entire city. Hmm. Thank you for sharing that. And also mm -hmm. thank you to Zocalo Public Square and ASU uh, for hosting us and, and having us here. This is a, a great conversation. Um, I was born in Ventura, California, so not too far away from here. You know, proud 805 um, <laughs> uh, uh, resident. But most of my adult life was either spent in Los Angeles. I went to UCLA for undergrad. Um, or working for elected officials that represented the Valley. So I worked uh, for a congressman, an assembly member, and even though I lived in Washington, D.C. and Sacramento, you know, we worked on issues of the, from the San Fernando Valley and Los Angeles, you know, writ large. Um, and, you know, again, back to your point, Los Angeles is a city of neighborhoods, and they have all the same problems that every other city in America has, really. I mean, homelessness, crime, climate change, sustainability, um, and you know now I work at Cal State Northridge, and um, and I've been there for nearly five years. And the Northwest San Fernando Valley is a particularly interesting place if you know the Northwest San Fernando Valley. But um, most of the valley is changing, and I think that for me as a voter and as someone that talks to a lot of elected officials, a lot of business leaders, um, all the issues that are in the valley are the same issues in Los Angeles. I don't think that there's this over the hill valley um, you know centric view any longer I think Los Angeles including the valley all really have the same issues and those issues are you know what I touched on um, and I think that you know personally as a person that lives in sort of you know the Pico Robertson area right next to the Grove um, you know I'm sort of confronted as just a resident with a lot of those same challenges um, you know uh, homelessness on our streets um, issues about uh, you know city management, um, you know every every day uh, some different city organization comes and picks up trash five days a week on our street. It's either the large bins or the small trash or recycle. And every you know every morning at eight o'clock we're woken up and I say why is that possible? Who can fix this? You know do I talk to my city council member? Do I talk to the mayor's office? You know that's just sort of this like small town thing that you deal with all the time. Um, and, you know, I, I think voters are really looking for, 
you know, there's a conundrum. I think voters are asking too much of, a, of, of an elected official of a mayor, and at times maybe too little. And it just really depends on, on that voter. But um, I think, you know, we were talking backstage, this is gonna be one of the most interesting, uh, you know, era-defining elections, I see it. The electorate is completely new. All vote by mail, possible. You know, the electorate I think is gonna be a lot larger. I don't know exactly what the demographics of this new electorate are gonna look like, which I think is interesting. Um, CSUN has a vote center. We've had it for you know several cycles now. Vote centers open 11 days. That's a whole new thing. And then there's your traditional voters like me who really love to go on election day and vote on election day usually. Um, so I just think it's gonna be, an, we're at an inflection point in the city and it's gonna be a very interesting time to see what, what ends up happening um, in the primary end in November. Taylor. I'll be at the vote center with you. I yes. like those stickers. That's <laughs> I love fun. the sticker. I'll let everyone know. Love the sticker. <laughs> yeah. So well, all, all, a lot of the things were already given, but I'd, I'd echo um, what was said earlier. So I'm from San Diego originally. Just came up the, uh, I, I wanted to say the 805 for a second, but just came up the 405 to UCLA undergrad myself. Um, there I studied political science, which was um, kind of my journey into politics has been an interesting one because I got to see it from an academic perspective as an undergraduate in a new city. Um, after graduation, um, doing the Coral Fellowship in Public Affairs and got to kind of understand a more holistic view of the public sector, and then working for the LA City Council after that, uh, as you had mentioned, LA City Council Member Mike Bonin. So diving deeper into the practicalities, progressively so, the practicalities of actually running a city. Um, and it's funny that both of you said neighborhoods, because I had in my mind 96, I was gonna say um, how, you know, the story of me and LA has been a uh, romance and a love affair from the get-go. It's one of the only places I can think of that really has so many unique places that are uh, part of its fabric. Most cities, you could say, they have different neighborhood names, but there maybe is a, you can plump them together. We've got 96 really unique uh, neighborhoods in the city of Los Angeles, 88 cities in the county if we're talking more regionally, and that offers a lot of um, unique challenges, offers a lot of pl uh, places for people to gather and, and to meet, um, and that's something that I've really appreciated. Oh, one other thing I guess I should mention is the experience I've had as a queer person in LA. Um, that's really colored a lot of how I've um, seen the city having been on um, EQCA's advisory board and the board of Stonewall, and I'm really a, a three-term delegate to the California Democratic Party, really steeped in the um, LGBT political world of Los Angeles and seeing kind of things from that perspective too, I think is, um, is something that um, is really colored my uh, relationship with LA. Wonderful, so as a business owner, I want to talk about Green Queen. Yeah. And because uh, the mayor has authority over the budget, has a lot of influence over budget priorities, and Green Queen prides itself on being a retail space, right, but also a social justice space for social justice, an incubator for uh, social justice ideas. So um, I just want to ask you do you have expectations for the next mayor to kind of? Um, involve social justice, how, do, how would you advise the next mayor or what are you looking for in the next mayor in terms of um, marrying budget, fiscal responsibility and budget priorities with social justice? Well, I mean, they always say it when they come out with a budget that a budget is a statement of your values as a city. And I don't think that could be any more true um, in this coming budget. Um, obviously, the story of 
sweeping across the country is about, or one of the big stories is about how police funding and how crime factors in the budget, and that's going to be one of the biggest um, litmus tests of the budget and the thing they're all uh, debating over of how do we approach policing? Um, do we want police to really have this super involved role in all aspects of public safety and public health um, and mental health and, and all the other crises they're, they're, they're set to, uh, they're, they're charged with, or do we want to pare it back a little bit? So I think absolutely the budget is gonna be really kind of critical for that and, um, and setting that budget, it's gonna really say a lot about um, where we really stand as a, as a city. Um, I think, does anybody else want to say anything about that? I think, um, you know, when we think about what, what we've heard so far in the mayoral race, we've heard a lot about homelessness, people experiencing homelessness. We've heard a lot about crime and public safety. Um, while holding space for those issues, um, they're very important. They, they're human issues of like, you know, making sure we're taking care of each other. Can you guys talk about, I want to ask you guys to uh, talk to me about issues that you think are uncovered, um, that, are, that are being ignored. Um, you can start, Rafael. Oh, I, I would say um, I'm a sort of uh, transportation nerd. Mm -hmm. I would say that that's not maybe not being covered, but not covered enough, I would say. The mayor, um, he or she, will have an incredible sway over transportation in Los Angeles. Measure M from 2016 has been is going to transform the city. There's dozens and dozens of transportation projects all over that are taking place, and there is this timeline to get many of them done before the Olympics. You know, 2028. That's just six years away, which is tomorrow. You know, really. Um, so you know, the the mayor appoints uh, has seats on the metro board, sits on the metro board, um, and. You know, Measure M is, I think, $120 billion over four decades, if not in perpetuity, the half-cent sales tax. Um, we're very focused at CSUN on a, a North San Fernando Valley BRT project that is very, uh, you know, it's been a, a labor of love, shall we say, over the you know, last several years. Um, but that really goes back to the issue of equity. Transportation is an issue of equity. We have 40,000 students at CSUN many of them first generation, many of them, you know, Pell, uh, Pell Grant recipients, and they have to drive or take a bus for several hours. Um, and, you know, if everybody in the city is paying this half cent sales tax, then everybody should benefit from these transportation projects. And the mayor really, really is gonna have to be focused on transportation. And I'll just say one other thing, the Sepulveda Transit Corridor project, I mean, it's going to be the largest infrastructure project in America when it really is finalized. Is it going to be a monorail? Is it going to be underground? I mean, it's going to employ tens of, you know, tens of thousands of people at a tremendous cost of billions of dollars, and it's going to take, you know, many, many, many years to do it. A mayor will have to shepherd that process along. It's going to be like building the Hoover Dam over the 405. I mean, it's going to be an extensive project. Um, I, I would say. Some candidates have been, you know, talking about that, and others really haven't expressed a very clear view on uh, transportation priorities. So I would say personally, that is something that I think uh, should be a little, you know, highlighted a little bit more um, in, in this mayor's race. Certainly. Yeah, and I, we were talking about this backstage, and I want to pick up on, <coughs> excuse me, the point of the Olympics. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's another piece that has not been talked about in mm -hmm. great detail. 
excuse me, and one of the things that the city of Los Angeles is already set to do, because um, we are at USC are working with them, um, is uh, a project around racial equity um, and working with each of the neighborhood councils um, who are willing and interested. We're not going to force them, but if you know, you're know you in a neighborhood council and you're interested in moving the needle, of course, yesterday was the two-year anniversary of George Floyd, and it can feel after Buffalo like, you know, we're so different from Minnesota, we're so different from Buffalo, right? But there are still, if from an infrastructure perspective, some very real racial equity issues, right? Whether it comes to education, whether it comes to housing, whether it comes to transit and transportation access, you know, public safety, housing. And so one of the things that I would like to see, you know, the mayoral candidates really address is how would they approach that so that when the TV cameras arrive in 2028, you know, we're not just sweeping it under the rug like we did at the Super Bowl, for example, in the city to the south, right? That we're actually making a difference so that when the TV cameras come, it really is a different Los Angeles, right? We've actually moved the needle. We can roll up our sleeves and do the work. And so I'd like to hear the mayoral candidates really talk about how they're going to address that, not just in terms of we all get along, you know, but more in terms of specific issues. What are you going to do about it in housing? What are you going to do about it in education? What are you going to do about it in transit and other areas? Although something I'd add to that, all those issues I do hear a lot about, and not to say that maybe they're not talked about um, as much as they should or could be, but the issues that uh, I think are the most silent are the ones that don't have a community stakeholder group that really cares about them a ton. There's a lot of transportation activists, there's a lot of people around housing, the Olympics are a really high uh, press issue, but we're not talking as much about how the average age of a water pipe in the city of LA is something like 85 years or right. in that neighborhood. There, there are a lot of hidden issues like that, and actually that's one issue that I think um, our political structure biases against is it, 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 it um, grants, it, it um, favors politicians to care about issues that are something that um, people can, the constituents can see and feel and are top of mind and affect their day to day. But there's so many other issues that don't have the community stakeholder group. I just mentioned water pipes. Um, but even things that are, should be a little bit flashier like green space. There, we're, um, since no specific group is a stakeholder and it's just kind of everybody generally and a little bit, it's harder to rally around things like that. So those are the sort of issues that I actually think um, as a society we could do a little bit better job of pushing our elected officials to talk about even if they're not what comes to the top of our mind because we just expect it to be done or just expect it to have happened. How do you think we can do that? How do you think we can bring that to, to front of mind for them? Or how, how can people know what, what it is that they need to be paying attention to? I mean, that's a great question because it's, it's, it's really a, it's structural and it's not like you can just change it because um, folks don't, um, yeah, you know, <laughs> I, I, if I was just going to try to come up with an answer, it would be half. half I, I would actually say, touching on a point that you made about neighborhood councils, right? Right. right. I used to sit on the Northridge East Neighborhood Council, and it's once a month, you know, from 7 to 11, 11.30, midnight sometimes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, it's a challenge sitting there, but you're sitting there with other, other folks who are really, you know, want to be there. Sometimes uh, they want to be there for the right reasons and sometimes for the wrong reasons. Um, <laughs> but you certainly hear issues that are happening in the community there. And I mean, sometimes there's, 
you know, as many people are as here in this room, um, and sometimes there's, you know, twice as many people, three times as many people, depending on the issue. But I found that that's when I would hear some of these issues. And yes, we would, they would bring up issues about water pipes being so old. I remember at UCLA, we had that huge leak some years ago. Issues like um, signage, right? Electronic signage or billboards, or whether a certain business should be allowed to have a, a, a beer license, the Chipotle on the corner you know, of Reseda should have a beer license. And, I mean, these things would take hours at times, but I did find um, that, you know, you would learn about certain issues that I did not know about, um, you know, insects and rotting in trees and, and um, you know, issues about um, uh, problems at the neighborhood park. Um, and I would say, if you really do want to know what's sort of happening in your community at the community level, um, you know, uh, be brave and go to the neighborhood councils at times. It does actually need to have more people, more diverse people attending these kinds of things. It's a very unique feature of Los Angeles, the neighborhood council structure. So I do encourage people, if you wanna kind of know what's happening in your neighborhood, take a stake in it and go to some of these neighborhood councils and participate. You, you may learn a thing or two. Mm -hmm. um, I've got a question from online. Do you think switching to a strong mayor system of local government would empower the mayor to get more things done and help LA's voters to hold the mayor accountable? Ooh, that's a, that's a, to take that yeah, one. Um, <laughs> I'll start and okay. then would love to hear you all's opinion about it. Um, so, so for those of you who don't know, we do have a comparatively weak mayor system um, in our city, uh, which means that the mayor doesn't have a ton of power relative to the city council and relative to other aspects. Um, and certainly our relationship with the county is very fraught, right? So I think that's one place where, again, having a strong mayoral system would probably give someone more leverage with the county supervisors. And again, when you're talking about issues like homelessness and you're talking about issues like you were just mentioning transportation, right? We've just had that dust up um, with, uh, Alex Villanueva, the county mm -hmm. sheriff, who's threatening, we're not going to protect anybody on any metro system if you don't give us the whole contract, right? Like those kinds of things, I think a stronger mayor could absolutely say, not on our watch, right? We will now turn to another form of, you know, um, protection, for example, on transit. Um, and other cities have, you know, like there's literally an MTA police force in New York City, for example, right? That's separate from NYPD, you know? And so again, related to, but separate from, you know, as a different force. And so there are different models that I think a mayor could try around some of these issues that we care about if there was, you know, a little bit more investment of power in the mayor. Um, that said, I do think that's always a risk um, because again part of why you have a city council is a city council especially in our you know format is elected regionally and if you have so many different neighborhoods it's very easy to have one person from one part of LA you know kind of focus on the things that come up in that part of LA and not think about South LA or not think about the valley or not think about East LA and the ways in which these things play out very differently you know across different parts of our city. It's hard to follow up that. That was a very great answer to uh, my, my, my professor yeah. to the right. Wow. Yeah, I was like, I'm wow. back in class right now. <laughs> <laughs> Got all over I just me. have the under. I just, <laughs> all right, doctor. I just have the undergrad for political science nervous. from UCLA. It's, it's hard to follow that up. Um, you know, working. You know, I work very closely with city council members as well. And since you know, um, CSUN, Cal State Northridge is in the San Fernando Valley. You know, uh, I was having a conversation with a former elected official, and we were talking about how the how the power, you know, the power structure really does come 
a lot does come from the valley. And if you sort of think about it, we have, you know, more representation, more city council members that represent the valley. One third of all voters come from the valley. For the first time ever, our senator from the state, you know, was born in Pacoima. That sentence in and of itself is historical and wild to just say. We have a senator from Pacoima, uh, Alex Padilla. The city council president, Nuri Martinez, um, is from, you know, the San Fernando Valley. Um, so I would say that a, a strong mayoralship would have a lot of pushback from the elected officials from the San Fernando Valley, uh, certainly. Um, but I sort of just moving a little bit away from that and sort of making a little nuanced part of this, I would say, I think, you know, when I speak to other colleagues and folks that are voting, that there's just so much anger, fervor, energy for change that I think that if that was presented to the voters in such a way that they would they would gravitate towards that. Because I do think that people, I do think that your average voter is fed up, angry, energized, you know, for so many reasons. Uh, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up the shooting in Texas. I'd be remiss if we didn't bring up, um, you know, the uh, Supreme Court decision on Roe v. Wade, gas prices, inflation, uh, crime, however, whatever your take is on, you know, uh, law and order at this point, whether it's, um, you know, if it's worse than it's been at different times or it's being exaggerated or it is or homelessness, I do think that voters are energized and I, and, you know, with the changes in the electorate that we're going to see, it's going to be, it's going to be, you know, uh, an election for the, for the, for the era, for the decade, certainly. Um, and whoever, whoever, he or she who is in this uh, new mayoralship that is going to be on cycle with, you know, in, in midterm election year on cycle with all these other uh, elections that are also happening, it's going to be a very interesting time uh, for that person. And um, I'm just kind of waiting to see what's, it's going to be a long summer. It's going to be a hot, long <laughs> summer for sure. Yeah, well, you know, though, um, I think this is the answer to the question you'd asked me that had just stumped me, though, is how do you, you asked how do you get um, folks to care about these unseen issues? You don't. That's, you're just not going to. The, the amount of con, uh, constituent education that that would require would be immense. And then even people, are not, they're not going to tune into that when they have sports and pop culture and uh, foreign wars that to attract their attention. That's why if we really wanted to get serious about those issues, we might have to switch to a strong mayor system. Mm -hmm. Right now you have 15 city council people who are all trying to get attention for their pet project, for the $500 a month free for some folks in this neighborhood, the, um, the uh, food waste program over there, or whatever flashy um, uh, program that a city council member wants that is kind of mission creep a little bit, and but that's what gets them attention. You have 15 people all trying to get attention and all have legitimate power to do so, that's gonna bog down the whole system. And then who's looking out for the system at, at a whole? You know, um, in getting my cannabis retail license, a lot of other um, folks who went for it, there was 40 folks who went for it in downtown. I was the only one to get it. Um, pretty much the, the argument of all the other ones were, um, this will create incremental tax revenue for the city. So give us a retail license, where this is gonna employ some more people give us a retail license. And you know, maybe that should take a more outsized view, but when I was working my team, I said, that's not what the decision maker is gonna care about. The decision maker doesn't care about maybe incremental tax revenue because they're just one of 15 city council people. 
Um, that's a little bit of city tax re increased revenue goes into a black box in the coffer and maybe they can claim one fifteenth of it. Only in a strong mayoral system would someone actually care about those sorts of things. Where's the tax base coming from? So those would be the sort of those unseen issues. We were talking about a question earlier. That's where they would get greater attention and greater stewardship, but potentially, of course, at the cost of representation. Um, related to that and how you get people to care, um, I think one of the, the big things you've got to look at when you're diagnosing whether you have a, a government of the people, for the people, is how many people are participating. Mm -hmm. And um, LA has four million people, but I, I think you only need 330,000 or so votes to become mayor. Um, city council districts, I think, are a quarter of a million people. You need about 7,000 votes to, to win a city council seat. So I, I'd like to hear you guys' thoughts on how you get people to even participate in order to even say what you want from the next mayor. How do you get people to even participate in the process? And, and what do you think is going wrong with our participation? Well, I think we've made a couple of changes um, that it will be interesting to see whether or not they're effective, right? And Rafael, you mentioned them mm -hmm. a couple of uh, minutes ago. Um, the idea that we're on cycle now, right? We're not trying to do this in March, you know, um, which used to be the end of the rainy season. I know that's years ago now because we don't really have a rainy season anymore. Um, but that is, I think, an important structural change. And then, you know, again, there were very few things we could count as good things that came out of this pandemic that you know we've all been experiencing for the past couple of years but i think the vote by mail the universal vote by mail is also really going to help you know encourage people to participate i think the one thing we need to be attentive to that you know again happens at the national level as well as the state level as well as the local level and we've started to see it if you turn on your television um, is that even though negative ads are very effective in changing people's opinions about people, so a hit ad can be very effective in changing what you think about a candidate, um, it actually depresses turnout in lots of contexts. Um, and so I think, you know, again, without trying to say we're going to become grand censors on free speech, um, I think we need to really think about how do we either have some balance um, or how do we make sure that, you know, those ads aren't having that impact um, where people just kind of tune out, especially after, frankly, I would not just say the pandemic, the past five years, right? So from basically 2017, January 20th, 2017 forward, you know, we've all just been inundated with so many negative things going on in the world. It's really gonna be important for us to think about at the city level, what does it look like to make sure that candidates have equal access to really talk about who they are and what their qualifications are and not be kind of slammed on one side or the other. Right. Just echoing that point, it, yeah, totally echoing that point. Um, it's, it, it's uh, you know, the changes that were made to the voting, you know, sort of voting structure with three political scientists here <laughs> on this stage, it's gonna, you know, I think we're all gonna be very interested to see what happens, but 11 day vote centers, you know, that all across the city that you can vote at any one of them. I mean, that that was that's kind of unimaginable even 20 years ago, even 10 years ago, where we have a vote center at CSUN, we've had one, we've had a vote center for the last several years, we started in the pandemic. We did it in uh, you know March of 2020, and we had hundreds of students participate there because we you know we you really do want to have you know youth participating, right? Um, we also at one point were the uh, eighth 
most used vote center out of hundreds of vote centers across uh, the county. We had 5,100 people come physically come through our vote center, and we had an, we've always had an 11-day vote center on our campus. So, you know, that's that's a huge technological change. If you go to the if you go vote in a vote center, you have these new shiny new vote uh, machines that looks like out of Star Wars or something, with like 18 different languages. It knows who you are. It's unbelievable, really, um, and I think that that has, that has really driven participation um, for your average voter with the vote by mail. Um, you know, that's also huge too. We're going to really see how that affects um, participation. I will also sort of, you know, touch on the point that you said about negative ads and ads. I had someone tell me the other day, I won't say which candidate, but they're running. Uh, this candidate is running ad after ad after ad after ad at every single commercial break. You know, I'll watch, be watching Hulu and there's commercial breaks in it, and it's it's the same ad over and over and over and over again. I wonder who this is. I'm not. I'm not going to say who. But uh, <laughs> this person told me. You know, this person said, um, "I'm not. I'm, I'm not voting for that person." And I said, "Why? Why would you say that?" Because I see that commercial over and over and over again, and I'm just, you know, I'm just so turned off by that. And I said, "That's." pretty wild to hear because that's the complete opposite of what that candidate wants, you know, from your voter. And I wonder how many other people are out there. I get a tremendous amount of mail and I collect all of it because uh, me and my colleagues go through it because I love to look at a mail piece, <laughs> you know, having worked for elected officials, I'm sure you agree. It's a lot of fun. You can just tell sort of the, there's like, you can play a bingo game with it. Oh, it's this, it's this, it's this, like it hits all these certain marks on it. Um, and by the end of an election cycle, we just have this pile of, of mail. Um, and it's always interesting to see negative, negative mail and where it's coming from. Is a PAC paying for it? Is the candidate paying for it? You know, how, how negative are they going to go on somebody? Um, and sometimes that really backfires, you know? It sort of backfires. You're trying try to drive up your, your opponent's negatives and it, you end up sort of highlighting some of their endorsements. So it's always really interesting to see that. Um, and so I would just sort of echo some of those comments as well. Taylor? Well, the only thing I'd add is, I mean, I remember my political science undergraduate class, we'd ask, why would anyone vote? Because if you think about it, unless you're breaking the, the tie or you're um, on the losing side of a uh, candidate that loses by one vote, something like that, uh, I might get my numbers right. slightly oh. wrong, <laughs> your vote literally, like your one vote literally doesn't matter um, in, a, in a, just a, a numerical um, literal sense, but yet we still see people come out. And that's because their sense of civic pride, their sense of um, who they are as an individual and what that they do is greater than the cost to turn out. But when we have an election off cycle, um, and it's you got to go way out of your way, you don't get as much kudos on the internet, it's, uh, it, it's, it's not necessarily as connected to your pride of being a Californian and being an American, in addition to being an Angelino, and you're asked to just ask about your pride as an Angelino, it's, uh, you know, as you had mentioned, for 87% of the voters of this city, they decided the cost of going and doing it was greater than the sense of Los Angeles civic pride. But I think we've explored over here in this conversation quite a bit how reducing the cost side of things, syncing it up with um, where folks, uh, it up with elections where folks, uh, Californian pride and United States pride um, can factor into their voting habits is going to increase the value they get out of voting. And while doing all these other things, the vote center and the vote by mail decrease the costs. So I think we're gonna see, I mean, everyone I've talked to says five times increase or something that magnitude perhaps of what we've seen in previous city elections. 
that makes sense. We're lowering the cost, but we're uh, uh, and we're dramatically increasing the value the voter gets out out of it by syncing it up with other election cycles. Makes sense. Right. Uh, I've got a question from online about Raphael. Oh. Uh, for Raphael. Oh. Not okay, about good. you. For, not about. <laughs> uh, it's not about <laughs> My your, your personal what is life. <laughs> Um, <laughs> is there anything specific you'd like to see from the new mayor with respect to support for local community colleges and state schools? Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, we have some of the most incredible educational institutions in this city and in this county. You work at one of them. I work at, at another one. We went to UCLA. I mean, Valley College. I mean, all of the, all of the colleges, Pierce College, our community colleges. Um, I w I'm a community, uh, I went to uh, Ventura uh, Community College. I was a proud transfer to UCLA. So I've been in the community college system, I've been in the UC system, and I work in the Cal State system. Each of these systems together, you know, really educate the workforce of tomorrow. They really, really do. And with the l tightest labor market in 40 years that we have, you know, we just graduated 15,000 students. The, all those students are going to go into the workforce and sort of fill those jobs that we desperately need. So I think the next mayor has to really have a focus on both K through 12, or as the new terminology I think is PK through 14, pre-kindergarten through 14, first two years of community college, and especially our higher education institutions. They can do so much. They can provide research. They can provide um, guidance for proposals and initiatives, and also. Um, just tap into the wealth of knowledge that is our that is at our um, higher education institutions, and of course, I mean, you know, our 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 little babies have been through so much in this pandemic, you know, and they they're still going through so much, and there is so much that was lost for them in um, homeschooling and just not you know socializing with other youngsters, and we you know. You know, I, I hear I hear from folks that a draw for one of the candidates that's running for mayor is that he has this kind of uh, you know, Rick Caruso, that he has this kind of grandfather feel. Mm. You know, I hear that, and then um, which I think is that is that's what he's trying to portray. Um, so you know, I hear that from voters, and then I also hear another candidate. You know, Karen Bass just looks like a safe pair of hands. You know, experienced, kind. Community uh, or you know a community organizer, former nurse, I believe, and I mean that she just looks like someone that will take care of this city. You know, two very different candidates. I don't think you know we were talking about this backstage. These candidates couldn't be any different, um, and the voters are picking up on sort of this image that they're trying to portray. And I just hope that whoever is the next mayor will really focus on um, you know that that pipeline or PK through higher education because our, our colleges, our high schools, our middle schools, our elementary schools, we can do so much for the city. And really, what is a city uh, if not for the, you know, for the children that are growing up here, for the future generation? You know, that's really should be the focus for the next mayor. Mm -hmm. We're gonna take some questions from our in-person audience soon. And while we're, you can line up to the left, my left, your right. Um, but in the meantime, I have one more from online. Do smaller cities like Culver City and Santa Monica work collaboratively with LA? What's that relationship like? Who wants to take that? Well, I know Culver City does, or there's um, with the West Side Regional Alliance uh, Council or something, I'm getting the, the, 
the words in the acronym a little bit off, and it's not always as collaborative. Um, and I used to manage Venice for the city council, rate sharing a board of Santa Monica, and there can be this thought of a bit of a zero-sum game where, especially around homelessness, if we're going to be honest, where if they're on our side, they're not on that side, or if they're on that side, they're not on this side. Um, there could definitely be more collaboration, or I know since so many of them um, are customers of LADWP and uh, the issues they have with water um, coming in and out of it, it's not as rosy as, as it could be, and there's probably more room for collaboration, but that's just my experience with it. Uh, I mean, I would say I think that what I see just sort of in, in my experience with my fellow millennials, um, you know, housing is such an issue in, in this city and in our county and you know the interplay between LA City and the various cities that are adjacent to it, Santa Monica, Culver City, like you said. I mean, I think that certainly is one of the big issues is housing. Um, and I think although these are different cities and the mayor doesn't have jurisdiction over them, working with the mayors of those cities and the city councils from those cities to address the issue of affordability and of housing and growth and density, all of these things that we need, I mean, at some point, you know, we are at this kind of breaking point. I really feel like, you know, I, I, I think everybody would would say that, right? I'm not saying something sort of um, out of out of school, but um, I think that you know, housing is just going to be such a huge issue for my generation, the folks just a little bit older than me and certainly younger than me. And if if this mayor could do one thing, I think would to be really, you know, also really lean in on housing and create a coalition of the willing to address that issue, to address it thoughtfully. You know, we can, we can both have our communities of interest and our single family home uh, communities, and we can also have our transit oriented communities and build next to, you know, the expo line and, and various transportation lines that we have. And I do think that the business leaders and the community members and, um, you know, uh, neighborhood council presidents and, and community organizers would, there, there is, there is space there for that. There really is. I think everybody recognizes that. And of course, the issue of housing is intimately and inextricably tied with the issue of homelessness. Um, you can't have one without the other. And I, I do think that the next mayor really has to lean in hard on that. Yeah, and I think I would only add, um, I think one of the real challenges when we think about transit-oriented housing um, and the ways in which you know our transportation system um, has kind of been evolving, as you were talking about a few minutes ago, um, is that, again, with the LA mayor having that control over so many seats on the Metro board, right? I think leveraging those kinds of things to make sure that we're also talking about making sure that people are not displaced, mm -hmm. right? Because I think whether you're talking about the Crenshaw line, whether you're talking about the Expo line, you know, those are kind of both around where I used to live around USC, you know, very much um, there is this real concern, right? That people who have spent long time, decades, right? Generations in these neighborhoods, right? Now can no longer afford to stay there because rents are going up because transit oriented housing not only comes in at market rate for the most part right but also ends up right raising rents around it um, and there's a corner of Expo and Vermont no yeah Expo and Vermont where I literally saw that happen right with the eviction of folks um, in order to build this wonderful kind of mixed-use um, uh, housing and also health care st. John's has a, has a health care facility on the bottom then led to right next door 
40 families losing their leases, right? And then that getting bought out and built up. And now it's for my students, right? So, I, so I'm in this catch 22. I want my students to have some place to live, but also there are 40 families who got displaced, you know, mm -hmm. all because of this, oh, this is a place where I can make a buck. So I think the LA mayor has to really have a comprehensive plan and coalition building, and then also access to the funding. Who's gonna be able to get some of that $98 billion that Gavin Newsom is holding on to to get invested in affordable housing building in Los Angeles? Absolutely. Let's hear some right. questions. Um, can you guys hear me? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, my first question would be, how can we hold the mayor accountable for what they promised to the people? Hmm. Who wants to start? Taylor? Election happens <laughs> every four heard years. A while. <laughs> I don't know. I've got so many opinions about what they're saying. I was like, education, that's mission creep. Uh, and, uh, housing, I was like, if we had a strong mayor system, that's, uh, we wouldn't be making decisions so much based on this block and that block and this one family and that one family. Um, and and the, the median housing price might be a little bit better be, as a result if we weren't making those localized decisions. But, but leaving that uh, where it was and just getting that one out real quick. Um, uh, you know, uh, someone once told me uh, that an elected official told me that if you make, uh, if you fulfill every campaign promise that uh, you, you had, and, and, and I've had lots of elected officials brag to me about that, you're probably not dreaming big enough that the size of your goals probably aren't big enough. This isn't the sort of thing where with, with legislators, you, you promise to vote a certain way and it's easy enough to do that maybe. But when we're talking about reforming a city structure and changing departments and the stuff that really needs to get done, I want my mayor to dream big and I want them to have big goals and to, and to really shoot for them. And that means that there's gotta be a chance of failure, otherwise they're not gonna be able to do it. So I think instead we should maybe be focusing more on um, on the process they use to get there and, and the, 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 the effort they put into it, as corny as that sounds, and then every four years, we hold them accountable based on how, how much progress we think they should have made and how much they actually did make. Right. Yeah, I think I'll just add one quick thing because I think you were right, elections happen every four years. That's our <laughs> primary accountability structure. Um, and, uh, and forgive me, I'm just, this, this, there's this story in the Bible of the woman and the judge and this widow would just not leave this judge alone, right? Um, and I think there's something there to that piece of it as well, like staying civically engaged, making it as annoying as possible, you know, for those elected officials. Um, Talk about the story for people who and don't, so, don't And so, know yeah, it. forgive me. And, and, you know, I, I just, it came up in another conversation of mine earlier today, and so that's why it's kind of on my mind, you know. And so there's this judge in the New Testament, um, and there's this widow, and this widow is seeking justice. And this widow will just not leave this judge alone, right? And so finally the judge gives her justice, not because he thought that her cause was just, but he was just like, oh my God, can I get this widow off my back? <laughs> right, now, now I'm not a pastor, I'm not a theologian, so if I've gotten that wrong, my apologies. Um, but, you know, the whole idea of, of making sure that you're holding people accountable. I think lots of times, and you know, I work with a lot of social movement folks and organizers, and they will tell you this as well, right? That it's one thing to kind of win the election or get the victory on the policy, and the local control funding formula for LAUSD is the perfect example of this, right? There were people who did not want to vote for that, who told the students and the organizers who were like, you know, trying to get this together, 
I actually don't agree with you, but you've given me no other choice. Like politically, I can't not vote with you, right? That was great, that's a great victory, it's a great story. But what happened afterwards is I think the piece that people miss, which is once the board got the money, they then decided they were going to try and maybe do something, you know, where like, I know we said we were gonna do it this way, but <laughs> let's do it this way instead, right? And if people hadn't been paying attention after the victory, right, then they would not have been able to say, hey, 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 that's not what you said you were gonna do, right? And so I think that civic engagement is important, but I think it's also the attention towards implementation and oversight that the people need to do to make sure that just because you voted for something or just because you planned to do something great, right, you actually have to stay engaged and make sure that they do what they say they're gonna do. Um, and I think you can do that, but I think that's the piece that I, I think a lot of people miss when they think just about the four, every four years there's an election. You know, I would, Great points for my fellow panelists here. Um, I would say, you know, elections are one thing and governing is completely something else, right? On the governing side, accountability really is everything, right? Because that, that is where the rubber meets the road. And I would say that there's some interesting tools that we have, I think, as citizens. Number one, I would say support institutions, support your local paper, support the, you know, the paper of, 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 of our city local papers um, and support institutions to hold elected officials accountable. So many of the stories that were broken about the LA City Council were broken by the LA Times mm -hmm. and were broken by local reporters doing what local reporters do, getting their hands dirty, talking to people, working their sources. And you know that's why so much of um, the corruption that came out of the City Council was known. Mm -hmm. um, so there's that. So let's let's definitely support our local institutions and support our local papers and reporters. I would also say that social media, for all of its ills, which I do, you know, that's a, that's another panel for another day, <laughs> another panel for another day. But you know, I I read a lot of Twitter and I learn a lot on Twitter. Some things don't turn out to be true. You have to figure out what actually is true. Um, but I do learn a lot about elections and candidates and initiatives and ballots and things from social media. And it is a very quick way to spread information about something that is happening to find you know, a place to go. And then on my third part, to be civically engaged. You do have to confront in a respectful, civil way your elected officials. Go to City Hall. You get two minutes, say your two minutes and give your piece. If you want to see one of these candidates, find where they will be and, you know, try to ask them a question. I mean, that doesn't always work, of course. You know, they're very um, protected at certain times. But being, you know, running for this job means that you have to be in front of the people. Um, you, that is, that's the whole point of it. It's your it's First Amendment, petitioning your, your government, right? right? You have a right to petition your government and your government has to hear you. And, um, and then if that doesn't work, four years from now, we will have an opportunity to make a change. Um, and two years from now, there will be somewhat of a referendum on that. And uh, that's why elections happen. You know, that's why they, we created this government in this way uh, to hold elected, elected officials accountable. So I would say use these tools to kind of, you know, to try to get uh, to hold um, elected officials accountable because that really is everything, right? Accountability in elected office is how we separate, you know, 
um, change from not change. Although the groups that are best able to hold the elected officials accountable are the ones that are organized around the more high profile issues I mentioned. And we're almost pre-presuming pre in this conversation that an elected official says one thing and then tries to make a decision that's counter to that. And that's not often what happens exactly. Um, so the only fear that I th the only risk I think we run by pushing this sort of action is that the elected officials will be um, forced to focus on the issues that get the most attention and have the most organization around them, which disproportionately are just the flashiest, maybe affect groups that are just the best organized and aren't necessarily where we as a city really should want um, an elected official. And if it's a strong mayoral system that's more insulated from the 100 people on Twitter or the one neighborhood group over here, that would be a thing that would benefit um, this, you know, insulate them from it and, and allow them to focus more on doing what we want them to do. Right. Uh, we are going to wrap it up by eight, but I think we have time to squeeze in one more question. <clears throat> Hello, my name is Bea. I'm with LA Commons with Creating Our Next LA. And my question is, what is one piece of advice you would give to someone who is new to politics, those who are new to electing a mayor or voting for the first time? What advice would you give to them to vote for the right candidate? Hmm. How do people know they're choosing the right candidate? What do you look at? Well, that's tough. I'll, I'll just... Yeah, met, yeah. I met with them personally. Yeah, I mean... Guys, so. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I'm very fortunate in that uh, I've worked for elected officials before, much like yourself, and I work with them, you know, day in and day out. And I'm part of a lot of uh, business and trade associations and civic organizations. And um, so I hear, you know, um, I, I'm just privy to a lot of information that comes at me uh, about candidates. But that's a really great question. How do you determine which, you know, which candidate um, you want to vote for? I would say, you know, back to your point about values, you know, a budget is your values. I'd say you have to decide for yourself which candidate represents your particular values. And I don't think that there is a wrong answer in that. I don't think that there is a, you know, even if you vote for someone that isn't going to win, if they represent your values and they speak to you, and you, you know, you're young, you know, you're young adults, and I think, um, you know, the issue of the future. I think every election is always about the future. I mean, the good ones, right? The the good ones are always about the future, not about the past, and they're always hopeful, not negative. I mean, I think that's what you know. That traditionally is what turns out to be, um, you know monumental occasions in American history. When we think about tomorrow and think about that future and when we're thinking about the young children of America and thinking about, well, what are we going to leave them? You know, what are we doing for them? So I would say whichever candidate speaks to your values and inspires you, I think that's what, um, you know, that you can sort of, you can start there. And then um, we live in the age of disinformation. There is no escaping that. We live in the age of, of toxic disinformation um, that is spread at the fastest possible rate in human history and that is very difficult. I would say with our professor on our, on our panel here, <laughs> I would say that um, people do need um, education and disinformation. We do, we do live in the age of disinformation. I think people need to be educated about that. Yeah, I was just going to add the, to your exact point find some reliable sources. And I think reliable, nonpartisan sources, um, I think one thing that's really great that we live in the state of California and we get is we do get voter guides, 
right? Um, and so you have voter guides that are going to be mailed, you know, so, you know, Rafael was talking about the mail that you get, but I'm talking about the one that's published by the Secretary of State of California that has candidate statements presenting themselves to you, right? Sometimes with their website, so you can go and learn a little bit more. I literally just voted yesterday, and for some of those judge things, I was like, okay, I don't know who these people are. How do I, you know, how do I find out? Like, I know who I want for mayor. I know who I want for that, but I don't know these smaller offices, mm -hmm. right? And so those kinds of things, the League of Women Voters does things around these. Coming to things and, you know, looking at these online, these Zocalo kinds of events, right? This is where you start to figure out what your values are. So I think it's absolutely right to vote your values, but I think, you know, how do you know, like, Everybody says we need to solve homelessness. Does it take a law and order approach, right, where we're just gonna arrest everybody? Is it a public health approach where we give them mental health and substance abuse treatment? Is it that we need to build affordable housing? It's a business problem, right? Like mm. you figuring out what you actually think is the root of the problem of homelessness, right? Where I would say it's actually all three <laughs> in some way, shape or form, you know, we have mm. to figure out. Um, you know, I think that's where you get the kind of information that helps you counter disinformation. So you're not going to be swayed by something posted on Insta or on TikTok that's, you know, so far out there about somebody because you've educated yourself with quality sources. I mean, that's related to prioritization too, as much as knowing your values, because in a, at the local level, it's not so clear, am I uh, pro-abortion or, 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 or am I pro-life or pro-choice or, or, or those sorts of things. It's, not as, it's more about how do you prioritize things. Everyone will say affordable housing is good. Everyone's saying, uh, everyone will say green space is good and vehicle uh, deaths are bad and homelessness uh, should be solved. But, but what do you prioritize in all of that? Because uh, as we were talking about earlier, the budget is the ultimate test of where, how you prioritize things and what that, how that syncs up with your values. Um, for me, if I heard uh, an elected official at the local level prioritize like education, that would be a red flag because that feels like mission creep. But maybe for someone else, they think that is the most important thing and highest priority and that everyone at all levels, even if it's not really their main focus, should focus, should um, be attentive to it. Um, so I think understanding the values and your priorities is probably a combination that's winning. Mm -hmm. Do Great. one more question right one over One more question. Um, what what effect, if any, do you think that the mayor should have on um, the foster care system, which seems to be a really ignored system in L.A.? I mean, uh, and foster youth, when they age out at 18, they have no resources, no money. Most of them have been in seven or eight foster homes, have been badly abused, have terrible histories, no personal structure, and 80% of them wind up homeless or trafficked which is just unconscionable. And it seems like that's one area that nobody's talking about and none of the mayors or the candidates are mentioning. So what effect would a mayor have on the social welfare system for um, foster youth? Yeah, so I'm really glad you asked that question and, and it's quite close to my heart because actually I've had a nephew, um, my husband's nephew, um, has been involved in that system. And so I'm intimately familiar, unfortunately, with yeah. that system. Um, and uh, so I, I would say two things. I would say one, I think this is where, um, I mean, to Taylor's point, a strong mayor, right, would be able to kind of work on a different level with the county. Okay, So of course, DCFS is a county level, you know, structure. 
Um, but I think also, you know, how do you provide resources to those that are living within the city limits? Um, so, you know, making sure that they have special access to, you know, if it's a free community college system, right? Mm -hmm. That's a two years of, you know, guaranteed community college or making sure that they have access to certain kinds of supports, you know, and promoting those things, right? Um, yeah, I think that's where the mayor can be. Right. If they have access to college, they have nowhere to live and no, no money to buy books or clothing or food. Right, so if you're piloting, for example, a guaranteed income program, right, how do you, you know, make that pri a priority group within that income program, uh, you know, that you're trying to pilot? How do you think about those needs, I think, in really particular ways, is the kind of thing a mayor could absolutely focus on? Um, and also, like I said, you know, being able to really work with the county and say, you know, this is what we are going to do. How are you all then going to partner with us or pay for some of the costs that we incur as the largest city in the county, right? Dealing with so many of the students who are transition age youth um, is I guess what the term is. Um, and, you know, whether it's from homelessness, whether it's educational resources, whether it's workforce development, you know, whether it's the mental health and public health resources that they need, you know, if Los Angeles, and of course they are, bearing the brunt of that just because of our size and scope, you know, what's the county gonna do to step up? Mm -hmm. I think we have to leave it there. Thank you so much to my guests for your excellent conversation. Thank you to the in-person audience. Thank you to people listening on YouTube. Uh, there's a reception in the back right afterwards. You can continue the conversation with the guests if you like. And uh, please come back next week on June 1st for the Zocalo Book Prize. And thank you so much. Thank you.